Let us come to God in prayer. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable, be open, be honoring of you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. When my wife and I lived in Edinburgh, uh, we had at that time a number of friends who were studying medicine. Uh, And so from time to time, uh, they would ask us to help them prepare for their examination tests. Uh, Thankfully, it didn't involve anything too invasive um, because they would ask us to come and be their mock patients and we had to present some issue and then from there they would set about some um, process of examining us that they might then diagnose us. And um, as I say, I'm not particularly great with medical things. I'll leave that to Jill. And, uh, but this process wasn't too bad, thankfully. Uh, and, but the process that they, they used through repetition and, and bits and pieces, it helped them learn a structure uh, of identifying symptoms, uh, discerning the underlying solutions, and then finally, consider uh, a a solution. And and so in his letter today, I'm reminded of this with James, because again and again, it's it's like he's been a doctor for these congregations. He's highlighted signs, he's diagnosed an underlying situation, and then he's offered some solutions. And in many ways, his material has been building to this portion of his letter, um, as someone needing to, to share bad news, he's, he's been building rapport. He's been gentle and affirming with them, often calling them brothers and, and sisters. But at the same time, James has wisely not dodged the issues either. Along the way, he has highlighted signs that there, there seems to be something going on underneath the surface. And as I say, he's been building to this portion today because today the good doctor has to break the the hardest of news. And once more, he begins with signs that suggest something is quite wrong. He writes, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So here James seems to highlight horizontal signs and vertical signs that there is a deeper problem. On a horizontal level, James sees the disharmony within these scattered congregations. He sees fellow Christians fighting and quarreling with one another. He even says that they kill one another. There is precedent to suggest that the envy does lead to murder, uh, but equally the adultery he speaks of in verse 4 is metaphorical, so it's feasible. He is not being literal in saying they kill. For as his brother and Lord said, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whether James has been literal or figurative, 
there are horizontal signs that something is deeply wrong within these congregations. As one commentator wrote, it is a depressing commentary on church life that James can write to a scattered people and make the same general comment on all alike. Similarly, another philosopher, different from the one a few weeks ago, read, uh, wrote, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. Stark words. So let me pause and ask a question. Are there fights and quarrels between us here at Brighton's. It'd be naive to assume that there maybe aren't some underlying things. After all, uh, James says that um, these quarrels arose because of the desires that battle within us, and all of us have desires. Um, The word desires here in the Greek is is neither positive or negative. It's not like he's he's talking about lust or or whatever. It's a very neutral word. It's just that those neutral desires, coupled with our messed up, self-focused, sinful nature, get twisted. And it leads to the kind of things James has written about. It leads to self-interest. It leads to unhealthy words, false wisdom, leading to cliques and disunity. So, So do we have any underlying issues here at Brighton's? We appear to be well on the surface, even healthy. But is there anything going on underneath? Are we allowing anything to fester and and niggle? What are the things that, that maybe are so bothering us that they are creating distance between ourselves? James says that the horizontal signs of disunity may point to something unhealthy underneath. But James also in these early verses speaks of a vertical sign of a deeper problem. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Clearly, James is speaking about prayer. And what he is saying is that our twisted natures impact even our spiritual lives. Prayer, as he says, could, it should be, we should be asking and turning to God because we know that the Lord delights to give the desires of our hearts. But even when these Christians do pray, their prayers are going unanswered because they ask it with wrong motives. Our sinful nature twists those very neutral desires into something that is all about ourselves, And as such, the answer from heaven is just no, or not yet. We know from the Lord's Prayer, as we talked about with the children, we know what to be praying. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Our prayers are to have a focus on God's name, 
on God's kingdom and His will such that the motives for prayer and the things we ask for in prayer should seek the glorifying of God's name and the extension of His kingdom upon the earth. So again, let me pause and ask, where are our more corporate prayers not being answered? Because James is not giving a fully worked out reason for unanswered prayer here. So if you are in a hard place, if you know someone who's in a hard place, if you've been in a hard place and have not seen answered prayer, please hear me. Please do not automatically assume that James or I are saying you're asking things with the wrong motives. He's more talking about their corporate prayer life. He's highlighting that alongside unhealthy dynamics within these congregations, they're also not seeing corporate answer to prayer. An example might help. By and large, we probably know that most congregations in the Church of Scotland are praying something like, Lord, we long to see children and families back amongst their congregations. We probably assume most are, are praying something along those lines. And on the surface, it's a very reasonable prayer. On the surface, surely it's a prayer that God would want to answer. But are we asking it with unmixed motives? To what degree are we asking it because we want to be successful and healthy? To what degree are we asking it because we hope our congregation or denomination may have a future or simply because the place is a bit less full than it used to be and we don't really like that? Because I'm not really sure God is bothered about those motives. I know He wants families to come to faith and He wants families to know life in all its fullness. I'm just not sure he's so concerned about those other reasons. And so maybe we are not seeing corporate answer to prayer because we ask them with wrong motives. We're not asking them for the sake of God's name and his kingdom. So James, the good doctor, has identified two signs that there's something going on. And so he now breaks the bad news. He now brings the situation into the light. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? The situation that James highlights is a grievous disloyalty, drawing upon the language of Scripture which describes God's people as the, his bride James says their behavior, their twisted motives are both adultery and friendship with the world. And that's always been a temptation for God's people. And so he often had to send prophets like Jeremiah who said, like a woman unfaithful to her husband, so you Israel have been unfaithful to me, declares the Lord. Like Jeremiah, James is warning these congregations that their flirtation with the world has consequences on their relationship with God and that God has no wish to settle for such disloyalty. As verse 5 reminds us, God loves with a jealous love. 
His desire is for his people to be holy and unreservedly his. Often, we probably think that jealousy is wrong, and for human beings it probably is, because it leads to the kind of fights and quarrels that James mentions. But with God, who is perfect, his jealousy does not stem from insecurity or selfishness. God's jealousy is a secure jealousy, seeking the best for you and for me by guarding our hearts from disloyalty. His affection is for us to return His affection, for we are the bride of Christ. He wants us to run from anything that lures us away from Jesus, and, to, and one of those things is friendship with the world. Now, to our ears, that sounds a bit extreme, sounds a bit odd. Are we supposed to be a wee holy huddle that just never engages with anybody? But we need to remember that friendship in James's day was much more than just seemed somebody down the golf club or the bowling club or at Friendship Plus or the coffee morning or wherever it might be. Friendship in James's day was identifying with their standards and priorities. Friendship was a lifelong pact between people, people who shared values and loyalties. And James is simply saying that that kind of friendship is incompatible for Christians. And he's not alone in saying this. Paul said much the same. So did John. But maybe Jesus has some of the toughest words to take on board here. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. From James to Jesus, the point is, is not that it's wrong to love others because of all the people to talk about love, Jesus talked about it so very much. He taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to even love our enemy. The point of Jesus' words and James's words is about who or what has the ultimate authority in your life. Is it God or is it the values of the world? And he's been trying to get that idea across to his congregations that there's a big difference between the two. The world favors favoritism of self. God says, no, it's the way of sacrificial love that marks my kingdom. The world just does religion in words only, and God expects us to partner in His kingdom purposes. And instead of words that lead to death, we are to speak life. Dr. James has diagnosed that the reason for the disorder and fractiousness within these congregations is that at heart... They have aligned themselves with the world rather than with God. They have acted in an adulterous manner. They have been grievously disloyal. And it's unlikely, it's unlikely these congregations were aware of the issue. I mean, come on, we can't assume that they were choosing to disown God and follow the world. He does call them brothers and sisters. It's likely they were like, well, I'm a Christian. 
I'm a Christian. I'm, I believe in Jesus as King and Savior and Lord and Messiah. I'm a Christian. But they got sucked into a dubious way of life. And that's a bit of a scary thought, don't you think? That genuine brothers and sisters in Christ have the potential to twist our desires so selfishly that we end up committing a grievous disloyalty towards God. We end up grieving God and arousing His jealousy because we turn our backs upon Him, even unconsciously. I wonder, friends, does that make you stop and take stock at all? In the areas where we have disagreement, in the ways that our desires are not being met, in our unanswered prayers, is there the possibility that these things are happening because we do not have the priorities of God? And as such, are we then grieving God? It's a scary thought. It's a thought that should make us sit up and take stock because that's what James is trying to do with his congregations, to make them wake up, rub the sleep from their eyes, and take a long, hard look in the mirror. Are we showing grievous disloyalty to God? I'm so grateful for verses 6 to 10 because he doesn't leave them there. He doesn't just cut the letter and, and end on a really hard note. He says that there's a solution. The doctor prescribes the medicine, and it's a grace-fueled loyalty that he wants to encourage. He begins by quoting from Proverbs that God shows favor, his grace to the humble. The point James takes from the Scripture is that those who will humble themselves, those who can face up to the truth, God will come close and raise them up with His grace. And so he says in verse 6, but he that is God gives us more grace. More grace. One commentator put this so beautifully that I really do have to quote him in full. What comfort there is in this verse. It tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. Whatever we may forfeit when we put self first, there is always more grace. No matter what we do to him, he is never beaten. His resources are never at an end. His patience is never exhausted. His initiative never stops. His generosity knows no limit. He gives more grace. He gives more grace to a bunch of infighting, self-centered, proud Christians. God is waiting with more grace. And all you have to do to receive it, as the proverb says, is humble yourself. Or as James puts it, submit yourselves then to God, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. James is calling for fresh loyalty to God. 
born out of humility and fueled by grace. This loyalty includes resisting the devil, verse 7, and coming near to God in repentance, verses 8 and 9. And we probably feel a little bit unsettled by that first one, that idea of resisting the devil. What's he getting at? But James has repeatedly raised the idea in his letter that something else other than God can fuel our choices. There is that dominion opposed to God and and it can have an impact. It's just that now James has been much more specific. And in calling us to resist the devil, James is, is calling us to resist anything that would make us act disloyally towards God. And so, again, the the question is, who is directing the path of your life? Who is directing the path of your life? Is it God? Or is it something or someone else? And, of course, we're going to get that wrong. We're going to get that wrong. We're not perfect. Our nature is going to take that wee whisper in the ear, oh, that's not right, or that's... You're feeling that desire that's not been met and it's going to twist. We're going to get things wrong. And so James calls us to show loyalty to God by also coming near to God in repentance. He writes, Come near to God and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. On the surface, do you not think James sounds a bit like a killjoy? He's pretty depressing at this point, is he not? But he will later write, is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of joy, songs of praise. So we need to keep in mind the context here. James isn't against joy and, and happiness and praise. Instead, he's calling us to repentance. That's what he means by coming near to God and having our hands washed and our hearts purified. Washing our hands is a metaphor for cleaning up our outer life, those specific acts of wrongdoing. And the idea of purifying our hearts is another metaphor, but this time with regard to the inner life, our inner values and motives, which is why he calls them double-minded there for they have mixed motives, mixed loyalty. So in both the outer life and the inner life, James calls us to repentance. He calls us to to take our sin and our disloyalty seriously, which is why he says to grieve, mourn, and wail, because when you realize that you've grieved God and aroused His jealousy, we ought to be upset. We ought to be repulsed by our sin and disloyalty. And sometimes what happens is that we get so shocked and horrified by what we've done that we think we should clean up our act first and then draw near to God. But that's not what James says. James says, first, come near to God. And then wash and purify Because if you don't do it that way, you're just relying on yourself and it doesn't do the job. It's not the way of more grace. We come first into God's presence. We come under His holy influence and in that place of grace, we become fueled to live 
in loyalty towards God. Friends, have you tasted of God's grace? When was the last time you tasted of God's grace? I've told you a bit of my story over the last year or so. I've told you how I came to faith at 19. I've told how I was so selfish at that time. And I've spoken about how my selfish actions hurt others, though I really didn't care. And so quite clearly, God's values were nowhere near the top of my priorities, even though I came to church every single week. I even came after working at W.H. Smith all day on a Sunday. I came to the evening service. I was dedicated. But then, in a moment of unasked for grace, God showed up one morning. The morning after the worst choices I've made in my life, God came close to me. He came with holy grace. He came as a holy God, uncompromising, showing me the sins of my hands and the impurity of my heart. He showed me just a little of the vast darkness that is there in my heart. But he didn't just come in holiness. He came also in grace. And with outstretched hand, he welcomed me into his family. If I would, but would humble myself and repent, turning to him. His love has astounded and captivated me every day since that moment, 18 years ago. And I have never and will never turn my back on him or forsake his call, no matter the pummeling I get for my faith or the risk I ask or the ways he calls me into greater likeness of his son. I am committed to him because I've tasted of his grace. He has cultivated grace-fueled loyalty in me, giving me such grace as I did not deserve and continue to do so in these 18 years. Even though I repeatedly grieve him with disloyalty. Friends, have you tasted of God's grace? And maybe you need to taste his grace afresh today. He stands at the door knocking on your heart, calling you to come near to him, to admit the error of your ways and find more grace, more grace. You may be a Christian, but even like the Christians that James wrote to, there, there are times when we need to come back to God to find afresh His grace, to savor it afresh, to revel in that, and to remember those moments of grace, to remember the basis upon which our faith, your faith stands, the more grace of God. My prayer is in, that in the depth of our being, we will know the more grace of God and allow it to fuel the deepest of loyalty to him and the healthiest of dynamics amongst us. May it be so. Amen.